Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I hope 2021 has started off on a good foot for you all and that you're able to surround yourself with people and environments that really help you to thrive. So to get us started, I wanted to share something with you that I'm not sure I've mentioned here on the podcast. I, I'm actually not sure. Maybe I did. My, my 2020 brain just really didn't seem to keep up. But last year, I wrote a book and it's called Vitamin A to Z. And before I tell you a bit about it, I'll tell you something a little bit funny that happened a while ago. I ran into a friend that I hadn't seen for a while and she asked me about writing the book. And she said, I guess there's no better time than COVID lockdown to write a book. And I thought, well, I can think of about a thousand better times than juggling work and homeschooling and family and personal well-being in a pandemic to write a book. But anyway, it's out and it's called Vitamin A to Z and it's what is called a mini. So it's a smaller book in size and length. But what I did is I put a lot of thought into making sure it wasn't lacking in all the most important ways that we can smash diet culture individually and collectively. So if you know my work, you'll probably guess that vitamin A to Z is not actually about vitamins or nutrition because I'm less interested in nutrition and more interested in the relationships that we have with food and eating and our bodies and each other. But instead, each letter of the alphabet describes the qualities that we can strengthen and cultivate to step away from the traps of diet culture and connect to what feels more meaningful for us. So each letter is explained as a short chapter and also has reflections and practices that you can take into life with you. It was really important to me that the book is useful and feels helpful. So if you do read it, this is my wish for you and anybody who reads it. It is available now in soft cover from Debut Books. I'll put links in the notes and ebook on your favorite platform. All right, so my guest for this episode is Rebecca McConville. You'll notice in this episode that I call her Becca too. So she doesn't have a preference for Rebecca or Becca, but I think we probably change between each of them in this episode. So Becca McConville is a board certified sports specialist and eating disorder dietitian. In addition to Becca's private practice, she has served as a consultant to the University of Missouri, Kansas City Athletics, Kansas City Ballet, local colleges, and previously worked with the Kansas City Chiefs. Becca is also the author of Finding Your Sweet Spot, How to Avoid Red S, Relative Energy Deficit in Sport by Optimizing Your Energy Balance and the InPower Masterclass on Red S. She is a co-host of a podcast called Fit for a Queen devoted to female athletes and I'm 
very privileged in a couple of weeks actually to be one of Becca's guests so I'm really excited to be reconnecting with her and be talking everything about sport and eating disorders and as you'll hear in this episode everything that we need to be really working on in sport and the way that silencing and secrecy and um, dismissing people's experience can really harm athletes and, and more importantly how we can do better. So Becca is also co-author with sports psychologist Dr. Mel Strano on a workbook devoted to transition out of sports soon to be released in the spring of 2021. And of course, remembering if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, then that equates to our autumn. So that's actually coming up in the next couple of months. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Becca. She and I share a lot in common, both in terms of the trajectory of our careers and also in the areas in which we specialize. It's pretty clear in this episode that we share a particular passion around reducing the stigma of uh, eating disorders and mental health in sport and in particular ways in which we can cultivate a compassionate environment in which athletes can really thrive and their mental and physical health is prioritized over um over disordered eating or any kind of behaviors which are sometimes inadvertently supported in the sporting environment so again i hope you enjoy this episode this will be one not only for the sports dietitians out there but also for just general um, general community members and general dietitians as well because it is really common that um, that people who are working with active folks not just athletes can get caught up in some of these um, ways of being which can can be quite harmful really so all right, let's move on and hope you enjoy this episode with Rebecca McConville. Hey, Becca, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's awesome to speak with you. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. You know, I'm a big fan of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I have been sports dietitians and involved in the eating disorders sector for quite a number of years together. And we've stumbled across each other's work for yeah for, for quite a while so it's an absolute thrill to be speaking with you about topics that both of us are really passionate about likewise yeah one of these days we're going to actually meet in real life when COVID's finally gone <laughs> I know COVID kind of kiboshed our plans didn't it they did <laughs> oh my goodness so Becca tell us a little bit about yourself what you're doing in your work and life um, and then give us a little bit of a trajectory as to how you got to where you are now sure oh I think like many of us we take the the road less traveled I confess I was a typical dietitian <laughs> and it was through my own mistakes that I learned like man what I learned in typical dietetics is, is not working out so um, I'll kind of swing back to that but Right now, I've really fallen into um, teaching the teacher, like being able to try to make change within the sector around REDS by um, offering a class for clinicians that's had physical therapists. Um, I've had a nurse practitioner, therapist, dietitians, running coaches, and talking about within their realm, how can they identify, how can they screen but also getting past that, like getting them the help they need, watching the language that we use with those individuals, um, breaking so many of the stereotypes and stigmas that we see around not only the athletic population, but also REDS. And so from there, I've been teaching my course, also seeing clients um, trying to be very vocal on social media, 
um, and really hope to just to continue to continue to grow that. It's like watching your children. So like those that have been in the course, they'll come back and be like, I presented at our state um, physical therapy association, or I changed our university protocols. And that's really how we get there, right? It's the, the trickle effect and being able to just have that seed of change that grows until we finally see, um, you know, globally, not so much this reds um, epidemic that I see. Yeah. So maybe let's go back and speak a little bit about the history of REDS. So relative energy deficiency in sport is a is a condition which affects um, many, many, many athletes. And I'm going to let you kind of speak a lot more about that. But how about we kind of take a step backwards and, and step through a little bit of the history as to, you know, what's kind of taken us here today? To having an interest in REDS? Yes. Um, well, one, I mean, just my own journey as um, a college athlete, like many of us, we want to try to find any and everything we can do to perform better. Um, so I was like, hmm, maybe if I start tweaking what I'm eating, then I'll get faster on the court. I played basketball. So see, there was an atypical sport that most people wouldn't have thought to, to flag. Um, you know, maybe if I start hitting it harder in the weight room, because my, our coach really had an emphasis on hitting certain, certain targets gosh, you know, I could actually go do conditioning outside of practice. You can see like many different flags that nobody caught um, that I started to have some, I had injuries that weren't healing. Um, I did lose my period for a while, but nobody flagged that. They just said it was stress of being a college athlete. And so I understand how they get overlooked. I understand how there was a multitude of different people that crossed my path, but they were only looking at one variable at a time where had they looked big picture, they would have been like, mm, something is off here. So that didn't immediately project me into that in my career because you got to get your foot in somewhere when you get out of school. So I actually had to go back and get my degree in dietetics, went into um, what many of us do like a hospital role and um, was part of a weight management program. I hate to confess, but I learned a lot. And now I understand some of the, the bias that um, us dietitians may project on our patients and clients. And I was like, gosh, something's not working. They hate coming to see me. I feel like they're so wrapped in shame, yet I, I believe what they're saying. And so um, I had the co-founders of um, Insight Counseling, which is an eating disorder facility in the Midwest come and present on emotional eating. And I remember sitting in there being like, oh, that's it. Like, that's what I see. That's where my values line, where I want to be able to treat and help patients and clients. And I actually ended up leaving and then going into to private practice and slowly getting supervision, um, eating lots of humble pie. <laughs> that apparently Ooh, yeah. Everything I'd learned was wrong, but I will never go back. And it also gives me that empathetic lens from which they may have crossed paths with the, you know, traditionally taught dietitians and apologizing and be like, we didn't know any better. We're trying to do better now, but we didn't know any better. In the midst of that was trying to get my, my foot in the door into sports and started working within universities and other places. And then I would see athletes that crossed my path that had very similar situations. And so I started digging into research, um, treating and working with them. And at one point, one of the co-founders of Insight, Michelle Michko was like, you know, Becca, you could really specialize in this. And I was like, but would I really have enough to do that? And she's like, yeah. And then fast forward to now, I mean, that's the bulk of my clients and experience. And I feel like I still have so much to learn, even though I dive into the research. It's just a really fascinating um, area 
um, to specialize in. So I love it. It is really fascinating. And I think as time has gone on, we've become much more adept at being able to recognize what's actually going on and then to be able to respond you know, appropriately, um, you know, backed up by the research that we that we have. So I know that you and I are probably going to be talking a bit about, you know, the gaps that we see and, you know, some some issues that we still see, you know, popping up in the sports setting. But what might be helpful for people listening is to set us up with how REDS actually came to be and how we understand it today. So I was sharing with you just before we pressed record that I had the enormous pleasure of meeting Roberta Sherman uh, (laughs) many, many, many years ago. And it was her that was so instrumental in my own early learnings of the female athlete triad. So I'm going to hand over to you to kind of step us through, you know, the, the evolution, I guess, of relative energy deficiency in sport. And I think it's incredibly important that we pay huge tribute and credit to all the, the, the people, the clinicians, the researchers who have taken us to this, to this point. So I'm going to hand over. Yeah, I mean, my gosh, I joke that she is the godmother and Ron Thompson's the godfather of eating disorder in sport. And where would we be today without their important work? Dr. Ackerman, there's there's many that we we could list, but, you know, it was formerly known as the triad, which was the cluster of um, weight changes, bone health, bone injury, and then also uh, menstrual dysfunction or amenorrhea, which is the um, loss of menstrual cycle for over three months. As research finally came in and as they actually started looking at um, male studies, they realized like, oh, this is a whole lot bigger picture and that actually like under fueling or inadequate energy can lead to not only all these physical consequences, but performance consequences. So we know if you work within the sport world, you have to talk performance outcomes to usually get their attention. And then they were finally able to see like, this increases your injury risk, this decreases your um, endurance capacity. And then that finally was like, oh, well maybe we should start assessing. We still have a long ways to go because that only evolved in 2015. And you know, with research, you gotta have time to collect data, especially right now, a lot of research studies have been put on pause because of COVID, but there's more and more like I just, um, read a narrative review on low energy availability that basically still called out like eight different things that we need to work on addressing, but it's exciting because as you and I talk about in the field, there's certain things that we see that the dots are not getting connected, but the more that that's put out there, some researcher is going to grab a hold of that and then hopefully be able to put it into clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. I think that um, being able to put things into a performance context really enables us to connect with athletes and coaches and other support staff in a really unique way. And it's for us, it sometimes feels like working backwards because we we have some interest in performance outcomes, of, of course. And the reason why we're hired by individuals and teams is really around the, um, you know, mental health, medical and physiological, um, you know, and total mind-body well-being type of situation. Yeah. And so it's, um, it can be require quite a bit of thoughtfulness, I suppose, to, to be able to have these conversations in way that makes sense to people and enable us to, to have, um, 
to have conversations which uh, encourage and, and motivate people to become interested in their own experiences in ways that then uh, encourage uh, behaviour change uh, towards repairing and recovery. Right. Yeah, you said the key word, right? Education is great, but it has to translate into behavior change. So I think that's where, again, we've got work to do. And that's where it's also been exciting starting to group with like the eating disorder clinicians, because we are such a perfect fit in the fact that as dietitians, we understand the metabolic needs and the, the health consequences, but we also understand or we are learning how to get the behavioral change to put those two together. So one of the things that I'm adamant about is if you are questioning if an athlete has read, you really need a dietitian that is also educated in the eating disorder piece because they may be an undiagnosed eating disorder and you're doing them an injustice if you don't get a team wrapped around them immediately. Absolutely. So what do you notice, Becca, about some of the hesitations around bringing dietitians on board? Oh, one, they, one, the athletes always worried, or sometimes the coach are that you're going to pull them out of their sport. And so using that, um, you know, return to sport model, you know, unless they've hit that red criteria, we're still trying to keep that in there. And that's what Ron and Roberta would talk about that for a lot of these athletes, sport was protective. You've got your teammates that care about you. Um, you've got your coach that's watching you, athletic trainer. If you remove that, then sometimes they feel um, isolated. So I think one of the things that's really important as well is looking at what is the hook for those individuals. So in that assessment or getting to know what your culture you're moving into, changing your language to fit that is one of the easiest ways to get in and to understand, like, I kind of joke, like most diet, sports dietitians got into sports nutrition because they like sports. <laughs> so we're not going to try to remove you away unless we find that it's actually protective for your health. And that's always our ethical line. Like if we know that we're compromising your health, then we have to have that tough conversation. We've all been there and done that. It's not fun, but that's where we're obliged. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the foundation of ethical care. Right. Yeah. So let's take a little rewind for a second here and help people listening understand a little bit about, you know, what is it that we're looking out for when it comes to relative energy deficiency in sport? You know, what, what are the, the, the signs, the symptoms, and, um, and how can we become better at, um, you know, screening and assessment to make sure that we're, that, that we're catching athletes early because we know that timeliness is everything um, and that we're putting into place interventions that really matter and that are effective. Sure. So I think what would be really helpful is to almost define what REDS is because I think there's confusion. So it's relative energy deficit in sport, but let's use sport loosely. As Leslie would always say, it's moving bodies. So it doesn't have to be that they are in a college setting or high school. It could be they're going to the gym, yet they're um, under fueling. I like to think of terms that most everybody can relate to and money is one of them. So if you need so much money or calories to take care of digestion, your brain health, your heart, then you have to provide that for your body. 
what ends up occurring is that actually the brain prioritizes movement and training first. It doesn't understand the difference between going out for a hard tempo run and out chasing a bear. It says the body needs that. If there's not enough sufficient energy, then it actually, I kind of call it metabolic compensation. It ends up compensating some of the other organ systems and they don't get adequate fueling. We tend to look at the symptoms of menstrual dysfunction being number one. And a lot of times if we were to look at percent wise, it would be, but that's not always the case. It could be the athlete coming in that's complaining about, well, I can't tolerate dairy anymore, or I get full really quick or bloating. Okay. So they're starting to have some gut dysfunction as well. I know in you, Marcy, have talked about that. Um, or, you know, my doc says I have this athlete heart, but when I get up out of a chair, I'm kind of dizzy and lightheaded or they're chronically nursing. I mean, I've had athletes come in for their first time assessment of reds and they've had six stress fractures. Well, you know, maybe we could have looked at your nutrition to see if you're not getting the building blocks that, that you need. So, and I know we were going to talk about this at one point, but one of the biggest myths that are out there though, is they assume that weight is going to be an indicator of when to finally start to screen. But we know that when energy availability is not there, our metabolism suppressed. So you can be at a lower weight, neutral weight or higher weight and be in energy balance because the body is going to suppress all these organ systems to get to that point. And I actually would start to see this trend of people inquiring about, well, can you meet with my daughter? You know, all of a sudden she's been slowly increasing weight, but yet she's been cutting her calories. You get them in an assessment and they're eating like 1200 calories, but yet they're estimated at 2,500. I'm like, this isn't a matter of putting on a diet. She needs to fuel her body better. And so um, that's one of the things I've really been vocal, stop using weight as um, an indicator of reds. And I, I know you're shaking your head right now, like, yes, please. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it um, that, that kind of myth flows um, at all levels. So amongst athletes and performers, or moving bodies. I love that. I think that is absolutely brilliant because when we talk about athletes or performers, maybe we lead people to believe that we're talking about people just, you know, competing at a national or at an elite level, whereas we're actually not. We're talking about um, middle-aged men who ride bikes a lot <laughs> or or we're talking about, you know, um, women in their mid-20s, um, you know, who who like to run and, you know, participate in half marathons for example we're not we're not talking just about high level athletes and um i haven't mentioned this so far but we're talking about people of all genders including folks who identify as transgender as well and that's one of the things that um about reds that it is definitely a step um, more inclusive which you know we absolutely need to be paying attention to because folks of all genders um, can find themselves in energy deficit which is which really matters and we need to really pay pay attention to that but back to the back to weight <laughs> you know I mean there is there is a lot of weight stigma in the athlete setting so what you've really hit on here Becca is one of the um, blocking points I guess to to people identifying uh, reds as a, as a serious and significant issue. Yeah, exactly. So if you think about, <clears throat> and this is where it has been helpful. I know you've worked in like a university setting. I realized that per athletic trainer, they're probably covering 
200, 300 athletes. So they have to be able to do things that are easy to flag. And so a change in weight, whenever they do assess, could be one that's easy to, to flag. The other part too, is a lot of times they only assess them one time a year where we know it's really in the midst of the season, they start to get stressed, they get tired, training has taken that toll on the body that we see these symptoms really flare up. And so we need to either empower that athlete to bring that up, knowing that we are going to take care of them or have more frequency of um, assessing and screening as well. Yeah, that's so true. So in terms of introducing assessing and screening to groups um, of people who you're working with. What, what are your suggestions there for, um, for sports dietitians or people who are working with active people? So I kind of do a blend between um, the low energy availability questionnaire, but also I really like the EAT26 because it starts looking at eating competence and if we know that that orthorexic mindset is probably one of the number one risk factors for the development of REDS, then this catches if they're having some of that disordered eating behaviors. That term is thrown around loosely. And unless you're in this field, they probably don't understand that, you know, having this obsession over eating fruits and vegetables can actually be a disorder behavior because our culture is going to, you know, let's put that on Instagram. The fact that we ate, you know, 10 servings of veggies today, not really us for like, Oh boy, where's the rest of your energy um, coming from? And how's your bowel feeling by the way? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that bloat may be all that fermentation from the fiber. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Um, that's always fun when you actually can get an athlete to make that change and like, I'll be darn, like, I actually feel really good. And I didn't have problems with gas during my running. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and now you're probably even hungry for the rest of your, your meal. And Rachel still did a great job in her book running in silence, where she talks about, you know, her platefuls of food, but yet she was starving all the time. So I always like my athletes will connect with that if they have that, that tendency, um, as well. So I think the assessments also have to tweak if we're dealing with like your younger age athletes, they're not going to understand. So it's almost teaching the parents or whoever the providers would be versus looking at um, the college, the elite, but also those that are going to be going into their OBGYN or those that are going in their primary care setting, like the menstrual cycle is the fifth vital sign. Like we need to be asking questions about that as Dr. Nicola Rinaldi would say, um, but also looking at your heart health and all of these can be prevented, except if the development of osteopenia, um, catching it early. So why not? Like, what is the downside of being properly fueled? Yeah, so true. And um, Nicola Rinaldi was actually a, a previous podcast guest of mine. So if anybody wants to dig right into more about the menstrual cycle and the intricacies, and it, I mean, Nicola is so knowledgeable and so fascinating and her work has really been I think it's really been groundbreaking in terms Mm -hmm. of helping um uh, people with with uteruses I don't know whether uteri is the plural but anyway uteruses I'll just say (laughs) for the moment um to to be able to identify and understand a lot more about the impact of uh the menstrual cycle on on mind and body well-being that it's not just about fertility it you know lies beyond that so I mean we could go on and on on about 
um, Nicola and her amazing work. But you know, referring back to that that podcast episode will give you a really really good good grounding in um, in in the cyclical nature of of our body rhythms. Um, so, Becca, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, what you've noticed is some of the um, other myths around reds and around the way that people present. And you spoke about orthorexia a little just a few minutes ago, and it might be worthwhile just uh, stopping and let's have a little bit of a definition of what orthorexia is so that people can really nail that down. Sure. It's basically an unhealthy obsession around nutritional quality, um, whether that means that they feel like they can't have anything processed or they have to have so much fruits and vegetables. I think it's unique to each person and how they define it. But what ends up happening is it impedes into their ability to go out with their teammates or their family. Um, and because these tend, I always kind of joke with my athletes, like you don't want things in your stomach that are taking up space and not paying rent. Um, because I love that. That's <laughs> awesome. that means that when you're looking at, I, don't, I mean, some of my triathletes were looking at 5,000 calories they need to consume. You don't want a whole bunch of fiber that's filling up your stomach and now you need to eat the rest of it. So kind of finding that, that balance is really important, man when we start looking at kind of the opening up, I always talk about the, the three things like the stereotypes that we look at that are in the media, um, susceptibility when somebody could be developing reds and then certain situations. So stereotypes, I, I really appreciate the fact that we're seeing more articles about runners and maybe dancers, but I feel like it may be isolating out so many of the other sports because they're like, well, like myself, basketball, that's not one you would tend to see articles on. So I probably wouldn't have met the traditional screening guidelines. Um, I think that they should screen all sports and they should screen all genders as well. Because if you are a human being that eats and lives in this culture, you're at risk for underfueling because of the messages that we get. The other part too, is our training has adapted Athletes are doing far significant more training programs. They're starting earlier, which means that it's that much more energy expender. And that's one of the things recent literature has talked about is there's only so much they can eat to keep up with that level of training. Should we perhaps start also tweaking the training as well? Mm -hmm. um, again, when I'm working with those and we're doing 5,000 to 5,500 calories, I like you need to be having a bar or something in your hand at all times to be able to get that in. And it's exhausting for them. So sometimes having some down cycles and training is really important. Um, the other part too, is usually our media focuses on like 20 year old Caucasian females. When I appreciated a month ago, there was a Jamaican African-American pole vaulter female that talked about how like nobody addressed it with her. She by quote unquote was normal BMI. So she didn't flag for that, but yet she had had stress fracture history. She had had all sorts of symptoms and was overlooked and was really kind of upset and was bringing awareness within um, the Jamaican track team that they needed to, to screen better. And we've had many male athletes that have come up 
especially in the cyclist community that have, um, you know, shared their stories as well. So we're moving, I think, in the right direction there. I always want to share those articles that I see and be like, this is great that we're bringing attention, but this isn't just runners, dancers, whoever, you know, make sure if you're having these similar symptoms, reach out and ask somebody. The other thing is like certain situations. So I talk about when I, um, when I teach my course, I talk about personality traits that make athletes susceptible and how that would translate into behavior. So that people pleaser athlete, if a coach literally says like, you need to eat more fruits and vegetables, they're going to take that and they're going to double or triple it. If a coach says, Hey, you know, and I hope none of our coaches would say this, but you know, lighter is faster they're going to push it to the point that their body is breaking down because they were, they're told that that would be supportive and they're going to try to please that coach. The other part too, is then when they're obsessive in nature, they're also going to be meticulous around numbers. So if they hear that 1500 calories is what they need, even though it's inaccurate, they're going to stick to that. So being able to morph our messages around those personality traits um, are really, really important. If they point you need to stop me, this is where I kind of get on my, my soapbox. So um, <laughs> the other part is transition out of sport. I think that is a huge risk factor because they've got coaches that are outlining their practice. They've got teammates that'll be like, hey, you don't seem like yourself. They've got athletic trainers that are addressing injuries. They've got strength coaches that are planning out their conditioning and then boom, they're left to go to the real world where nobody is going to be reining them in. And I can remember, okay, so I'm normally at the gym for about three hours. That was built into my day. So what did I do? I would go hang out at the gym for three hours, but yet at practice, you have breaks, you're stopping, you're, you're talking over plays, you're having water breaks. And so I think we need more education as to what that looks like when they're not competitive in their sport anymore. The other thing is um, postmenopausal athletes. They're so inundated with messages around fear of weight gain, um, fear around especially carbohydrates, but yet that is the hugest growing group in endurance events. And so I have had an uptick in postmenopausal athletes that have reds because they're eating as little as possible, but yet they're competing at this extreme level. Nobody would screen them and they don't have a period anymore. So it's not something that you can check, like how's your, your, your menstrual cycle. Um, last but not least is also postpartum. So in that postpartum phase, there's such a huge energy uptick for either if they're nursing or through going through the pregnancy, that's a huge energy consumer. You have this baby, you want to get back to having some freedom, right? Especially our cultures like bounce back. I hate that term. <laughs> um, and so they, they hit the gym or they go back to running really early and stress fracture risk within that six month window is almost triple what we see in athletes because of the hormonal changes. Um, again, it's normal for there be hormonal imbalances um, and also energy imbalance, but they get overlooked. So those are some of the biggest myths or situations that I see people don't give the attention to. As you can tell, I feel like everybody should be assessed for their, <laughs> their energy intake, but I would love to, to see some changes in those areas. 
Well, with the dominance of diet culture within the sports setting across levels, across genders, across different, um, you know, competitive situations, that it would it is unsurprising that, of course, people get missed, that myths abound and that um, and that people continue to really struggle and suffer in silence, not really naming their experience and not understanding that they're not alone. And that compounds, I think, a lot of the embarrassment or shame or disappointment, sadness, anger, you know, th those myriad of emotions that people experience quite frequently when they're, when they're competing and training. Sure. Another one that I should bring up too is the fact that I, you know, we'll get this sometimes within our eating disorder work, but they expect it to be that there's a significant change in their intake that would cause it when actually within day energy availability, it's as little as like 250 calories. That could be the difference in your protein bar you grab. Um, and so I talk about the lateral changes. So if you're going to go in and make out your meals and snacks, make sure that all your snacks are roughly around the same, um, that you're making sure your fat components and carb components on the plate are roughly the same. That way it's not something subtle. Cause sometimes I think it is a lack of education. And I love the slide where I'll pull up and I'll do like Google estimate calories for an 18 year old runner. And there's like a 700 calorie difference in the resources that you pull up right there. Boom. That would be enough that they would have an energy imbalance that would lead to some of those hormonal changes. The other side is the cultural influences that they feel like they have to hit this mold. And I think that's where we really need to do a lot of work in making sure one those that are working around athletes aren't stepping outside their scope of practice. My heart always extends when I get somebody in that basically has had these repeat like, oh, but I've been told if I just correct my reds, I'll be fine. But by the time we're on the sixth visit, this isn't a knowledge deficit. This is an undiagnosed eating disorder. And when you bring that up, they're like, yeah, I can't believe nobody's brought this up. And this has been in and out of doctors or been around other clinicians. So I think we really have to make sure, um, what is it? The, again, I, I quote Leslie, cause she has a lot of funny quotes, but sometimes we're looking for the zebra where really it's just an underfueled athlete. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. And also, I mean, it, it, it is fair to say, I think that there is a lot of mental health stigma in sport. It's, oh, it, yeah, I mean, it, it has improved quite significantly, I would say, during my sports nutrition career, um, particularly around depression, anxiety, um, maybe even gambling problems, you know, and other, other kind of processes like that. Um, but, but it still remains that eating disorders almost feels like it sits separately to other um, other conditions so when we say you know as opposed to it's a spectrum you know it, it, it sits at at one end of a, of a spectrum and that a lot of our athletes actually um, they, they sit towards the disordered eating section you know if, if we were to compare 
for example, highly competitive athletes towards non-highly competitive athletes, that they would sit up, if we were to screen everybody, they would sit up kind of one end. And of course, there's going to be a particular percentage of people who we work with that are going to tip over and have those significant mental health consequences, which is not easily recognised, very normalised within the within the, um, you know, the sporting culture. So again, it feels as if it kind of sits outside. And there is a part of me, and I'm super interested in your thoughts on this, Becca, there is a part of me that notices, um, so it's not a suspicion, it's actually a noticing and an observing that when um, we look at the research and we're looking at the way that REDS is set up and explained and you know the educative piece of it that I I notice that there is a lack of almost overt and explicit um, conversations around the significant the often the significant presence of disordered eating yes absolutely I will absolutely say that there are situations where athletes find themselves inadvertently in situations of energy deficit that's definitely the case I see it most often in higher weight male athletes where something changes in their training um or they have a seasonality change or something something changes and they actually kind of don't clock it. They don't clock that they need a lot more energy or they change training programs or they change teams or they change coaches or something happens. So, so yes, that does happen, but I more often see it in particular kind of athlete groups. Um, and they're often the ones that are presented like at conferences. I notice it's like a heavyweight rower. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's perhaps not your typical kind of it might be it might be it's one of the groups of reds presentations but um but i don't know i'm so i'm so interested in this because i do observe there's this there's this kind of lack of explicity um with you know we we have un, unless proven otherwise we should really should be screening for an eating disorder unless proven proven otherwise oh absolutely and i say what's the harm in that right why not screen everybody? Because if we know that in particular subgroups, the literature has demonstrated almost sometimes 65 to 75% risk of eating disorder or disordered eating. Well, why wouldn't (laughs) you? Yeah. That kind of puts the, the, the numbers in favor of that. So the other part too, is it's easy for them to dismiss, like it's part of sport, but I always say an athlete's a human first. And so if it's getting in the way of you going out for your birthday, or if you're going home and it's been the holidays and you're fearful of what kind of foods are going to be provided, we have a problem because that is going to interfere with your quality of life. Um, And also looking at holistically, you can eat all the things and still perform well. And I think that's where I get frustrated. There have been prominent researchers, even within REDS, that then in other literature have commented about how for this person to compete or run at a high level, they have to be light. And you're like, you can't, those same people are going to be reading both of those. And now you've given them a confusing message. And all they know is they want to have that PR that you just said, I have to be light to do. And so I think we have to just stick to the guns. Health comes first. 
And then we look at how can we help them perform better? We cannot have them toe the line. Yeah, you make a really good point about kind of giving with one hand and taking with the other and impact that that has not only on individual athletes, but then also on on whole, whole groups and, and actually as a sp- sporting culture as a whole, really, where what I, what I, what I suspect it does is that it, the, con- what the confusion does is uh, allow, um, allow individuals, groups and communities kind of off the hook of doing really thorough screening and assessment allows um, mental health stigma and weight stigma to, to kind of fester. And then on the, on the other hand, um, athletes are, are missed and their health and well-being is not being well attended to and then they get injured and then they retire early or they discontinue for whatever reason and they're kind of made in some ways invisible we don't if if they um, drop out of sport or they switch teams or do whatever it's almost like they don't get counted in the uh, consequences of diet culture in sport essentially yeah, and I, I would really love to see, um, I hope I pronounced her last name correctly, Molly Seidel. She was the American runner um, that had ran at Notre Dame, went into treatment for an eating disorder, got recovered, um, and then ran and ended up you know, t- placing top three so many times. And this, I'm echoing the voice of what athletes have told me in the office. All they see is athletes that are now done with their sport that are commenting how they struggled. So they're fearful that if they try to recover, that they won't perform well. Um, And I always love where um, Kara Bazzi, she did like a self-experiment where um, she tried to see if it truly was the fact that she was at this lighter weight um, in college that she had gone in. I hope I'm speaking right for her. She um, went into treatment for anorexia. When she got out, she loved running. And so when she got in a healthier state, she goes, I want to prove that it was not my weight and was actually able to run at a faster speed at her healthier weight. And was like, see runners, that's not the case here. I can show you, I actually ran better, healthier than I did just because I was lighter, but that's only two that I can think off the top of my head that can prove that. And we need more athletes to be vocal, but I agree with you. I think it's because of the stigma. Nobody wants to come forward or they feel like they're going to be pulled out of their sport forever. So they're just going to try to hide it as long as they can. Right. You're right. The kind of the the retrospective sharing of a story, it is incredibly important and it's really, really valuable. And also um, it, you're right. It, it kind of, it, um, it doesn't encourage athletes who are recognizing that in themselves at the moment to, to, to speak up and to be a lot more uh, vocal. I think um, one one situation I can think of there, there have been a few, but one situation I can think of is in a, in a women's um, very high level sporting team here in Australia, where one of the, um, one of the athletes in a group of about 30 did speak up about her eating disorder. And um, she was not at a low weight. It um, wasn't obvious. She had been really struggling for a long period of time. This was not a team that I was directly working with. I was consulting with them around um, eating disorders education as a result of this athlete coming forward and saying, I am currently struggling. This wasn't a past event. I am currently struggling and I need your help. And I thought the first, my first instinctive thought was how incredibly brave. And then my second thought was, wow, that's interesting that my first thought was that it was brave. 
<laughs> you know, because that's true. That, that it's true, and also, wow, it's a pity that that I too labelled that as brave, um, because what that goes to show is how much work we've really got to do. Yeah. And, you know, for, if there's an athlete that ends up listening to this or for the clinician, you know, just telling them you will love your sport that much more when you are at this place of being physically and mentally healthy, when you feel tormented, like you have to do things that's not fun and go back to childhood. Like, why did you get into that activity that you're doing? It was for the love of it. And so I think being able to have that self-compassion, having them understand that they are part of this process. And so they're vested in it. will continue to get them to be more vocal. And you're right. Maybe you're right. I need to correct my own language. And I'm like, Oh, I wish we, you know, we could, how inspiring this person came forward and be like, here's another story athlete. Where's yours at? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that over the next you know, five to 10 years, as, as long as that kind of sounds away, that we will continue to make steps forward and athletes will continue to, um, the thing is that, that athletes won't speak up in environments that feel unsafe. They will True. only speak up when the environment in which they are training, living and competing feels safe enough for them to be able to continue to participate and also speak up. And so for me, I feel like, Yes, I'd love athletes to speak up, but they're not going to until the environment is such. And I mean, fortunately for this particular athlete, the sports dietitian was, was, is, is, she's still with the team, is incredible, really um, knowledgeable and supportive. And I actually think that had a lot to do with it is um was the the support of the allied health staff the physiotherapist the um strength and conditioning coach and the dietitian I, re I really think that that had a lot to do with it is saying that you can continue to participate and compete and be part of this team and also that we are going to we are going to support you in ways that really help you to recover I love that. And that's one, one day, you know, conferences are great when you get like the lunch breaks and you just sit down and just chat with colleagues. And I was visiting with Dr. Claire Marie Roberts and they were talking about within um, football, they were doing an inside out model. So before they actually provided any education to the athletes, they started with the coaches, the physiotherapists, the strength coaches, administration and educated them then started with the players that way the language was the same they understood what to look for and they found it was a whole lot more effective um in addressing the mental health component she's a sports psychologist but i was like that is brilliant because how many times does an athlete identify that they're struggling they go to get help and they're kind of dismissed mm -hmm. or embarrassed or don't know where to go or even the coaches don't know where to turn them to. So I love that. I, I think that's probably one of the best ways to have prevention. Oh, absolutely. Because when coaches and support staff um, can understand with the potentially what could happen and what currently is happening, I think it really um, makes a, it makes a big impact on the environment itself because often, not always, but often coaches and significant support staff managers and so forth, and a lot of the allied health staff, of course, have been former athletes themselves. They understand what it is like to be like a, a, a team member. And sometimes um, they, I mean, I, I want to say this 
in a completely open-hearted fashion, um, sometimes they haven't actually done their own work. They haven't overcome their own stigmas around um, around weight and nutrition. And sometimes, I was going to say often, but I'm going to be generous and say sometimes, they've still got their own hang-ups around body image and they've still got their own hang-ups around food. And my gosh, that significantly trickles down to support mm-hmm. staff and to athletes as well. So I cannot tell you the number of times that I have heard coaches and support staff say, oh, that's all very well and good, but we don't have eating disorders, you know, in our in our team. You're right. That's my reaction too, is I think, no, no, it's just that you're not aware of it. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, you're just not not aware of it because chances are you have, well, and also where there's one, I always use the iceberg analogy, where there's one, there'll be 10. Right. <laughs> simply that they feel like they have to defend that I'm like oh boy it's probably <laughs> random because that's the culture that's being instilled so right 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 that's exactly right so you know although we have you know I feel like we've got a long way to go I feel like today we've hit on some really important topics around um, prevention through education from the kind of top down and that yes it's, it's really important to um, educate athletes and, and active people but really starting from the top particularly if people are involved in a in, an, in a broader organization or broader clubs and teams that that everybody from the top down really understands the um, significance of the intersections between bone health and hormone health and nutrition and most of all I'm just going to give a massive shout out to um, our colleagues and to say that a, a dietitian preferably preferably a sports dietitian preferably an eating disorder specialist sports dietitian <laughs> really is going to be your greatest tool when it comes to um, being able to um, educate and support the team. Uh, yeah, I completely agree because we're going to, we're also going to be able to know when that behavior has crossed the line into disorder right. versus maybe just again, justifying it for their, their sport. But, um, you know, I encourage all dietitians though that are interested, you know, get some supervision on it. There's plenty of colleagues that have great groups there's plenty of education that is out there. And if again, you know, I am in this better research on a weekly basis and I feel like I'm just getting the surface that, that hopefully means that we're going to have some significant breakthroughs in how we're treating, identifying and preventing as well. Yeah. Love that Becca. So with that in mind, um, tell us about your program, the program that you run for professionals, um, because I'm sure people listening would be really interested maybe in participating. Well, I'd love to have them. So yeah, it's the Empire Masterclass for Clinicians on Reds. It's eight weeks and basically kind of covers some of what we talked about today. They're live, but they're also recorded. Um, and then they're on a Facebook group and lots of literature, lots of handouts. Sometimes too, we save, um, you know, 10 minutes at the end for case studies. And the goal is to bring everybody at the round table that's going to be working with athletes. And that's why I love the fact that I've had a balance of, I call them health pro- or athlete providers. Instead of health providers, we have athlete providers, those that are taking care of their health um, and being able to, to implement that change and also just kind of continuing to put little snippets of information on there. And then they have access to it um, indefinitely. So if there's more information that comes out, that will be on that, that group. And then they can follow me on social media too to continue to see when the signups are. Fantastic. So where can people find you? Sure. So on Instagram, it's at Rebecca ED Dietitian. And then I'm on Facebook. Uh, Twitter this is horrible. You got to remember all your handles, right? <laughs> it's at Becca Lee, uh, CSSD. 
and I, th- I think that's it. I don't do the snap tweets. My daughter makes fun of me. Um, I'm snap not tweets. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I'm not always the most advanced with social media, but Instagram is probably where I'm the most active. And your website? Um, it's beccamcomble.com. Perfect. And I'll put all those links in the show notes. Are you a TikToker, Becca? No, I'm not. No, neither am I. It's okay. <laughs> but, but, I, but I find it, um, I actually really enjoy watching people do, um, you know, people doing, it, it's education. They really are doing a lot of education and teaching in a really fun way. Like imagine dancing and telling people about PCOS symptoms. I just think it's really <laughs> clever. Um, it's not for me. It's not my um, preferred communication style, but um, I am really enjoying seeing primarily younger, you know, emerging, emerging dietitians coming through. And I just, I find it just so entertaining and a beautiful um, communication strategy. It's something different and it really seems to um, interest, you know, um, teenagers and younger adults coming through in ways that, in ways that, um, you know, we haven't necessarily been able to do. I think it's brilliant actually. Yeah, I mean, it's all about if you could find the hook and if that's the way they connect. It's kind of funny. That's how I um, I also coach my uh, daughter's basketball team. And so I use like for box it out, I'll do like walk it out and I, I get him giggling because I'll start dancing. And so, gosh, maybe I should do some TikTok videos. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter would be mortified, though. <laughs> well, all the more reason to do it, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be an embarrassing mother. I mean, seriously, you're not doing your job good enough, Becca, unless you're embarrassing them. Fair play. My mom did it to me. So, you know. Passing on the love. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Becca, it was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so, so much for this really rich conversation. Um, If you're looking for more information on REDS, if you're looking for more information on Becca's services, then all those links will be in in the show notes from today. And is there anything that we missed, do you think, Becca, today? Oh gosh, I'm sure there's, there's plenty that's still out there, but I think we, we covered the tip of the iceberg, as you'd say. And again, there's lots to learn. So anything that you guys have seen, post that out there as well. That's how you make change, right? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. These conversations really can just pique people's interest and, and um, encourage them to, to dig a little deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Becca. I really appreciate the time that you've so generously spent with us today and I really look forward to hopefully cross fingers be meeting meeting you in person when the the well, the shit show which has now <laughs> apparently turned into 2021 as well. I mean wasn't midnight supposed to be the end of it? Damn it. Yeah, we're just gonna keep pushing. Which midnight is it gonna be? <laughs> <laughs> Right. I don't think, I don't think January got the memo. Yeah. That, you should do a meme on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not a bad one, is it? Yeah. So, well, I had this, um, I had this thought, I mean, I don't know why I'm putting this on the podcast, but I might as well. I had this little thought of a meme, like the conversation between 2020 and 2021. So 2020 would say something like, Hey, I'm really looking forward to seeing you. Um, you or, you know, whatever, whatever. And then 2021 being like, and just laughing you know yeah january definitely right right just i think it probably would be more like that anyway it's silly this is already a highlight of 2021 is being on your podcast i got mad respect for you oh thanks becca likewise right back at you
Thank you so much again. I'll talk to you soon. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. Mm-hmm.